Today's sermon comes from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 14 through 21. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth is stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they, shall, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring. Or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, it says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Interestingly, in ten years of preaching, you come across heavy texts, and this is one of them. And so, uh, train very well to dig in the Greek and the Hebrew and to figure out what in the world is this text meaning, what's it about. And when you come across heavy texts like this, it's really good to listen to other people who have preached this, particularly older, wiser people, uh, and how they handled this. This is a sermon about evil and God's justice against evil. And so I started doing research over the last several weeks and found none of the pastors that I research and listen to and have uh, been a spiritual son of over the last decade or longer of being a Christian have ever preached on this text. Uh, I see why. It's a, it's a heavy text. It's going to be a lot of heavy things today. If you're visiting with us, this is abnormally heavy. I uh, hope I do not scare you off. Uh, I'm not trying to add more to this or take away from it. We're just going to walk through it as it is. But why do some skip over this, right? And why are we preaching it? Well, we're constrained by the text. We don't shy away from hard text. We preach the word in season and out of season. And uh, we as pastors, Keith and I, uh, do not get to determine uh, how we just kind of skip over these things. So it's heavy. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, if you do find yourself frustrated by anything I say, uh, that's not going to shock me. Uh, this sermon has been absolutely uh, wrecking me all week. And uh, if you do find yourself at odds with this, please let's find the time to talk about this and um, work through this together. I'm going to pray for us uh, very quickly and then we'll dive in. Now, Father, this is your word and uh, I'm Balaam's donkey uh, to just uh, share it. Lord, I pray that as the chief of sinners, Lord, that you would be glorified, that we would see Jesus and him only, that you be glorified. Ultimately, Lord, uh, I preach for an audience of one. Um, but Lord, help us and help me uh, to speak critically uh, and to be constrained by your text at all times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Sikh Sayoram was a Buddhist law student living in Cambodia. And Sikh spent uh, his time paying his way through law school by being a DJ in a nightclub. 
But Seek started to notice that alcohol wasn't the only thing on the menu. His eyes started to be opened to a world of evil around him. He noticed that there were children and teens who were being solicited uh, by predators. And there was commerce for these children all around them. He felt disgusted by it. He felt and saw the evil of this, and he wanted to do something about it. He partnered with the International Justice Mission, and it's a Christian organization that helps battle back against human trafficking. During this time, he was building relationships with people in this organization inside of Cambodia. Uh, and during that time, they gave him a Bible. And he became a confidential informant for this group for the authorities. And so sitting as a DJ, spinning whatever DJs do, um, probably noises that they make. As he was doing this, he was flipping through the Bible. And he was being encountered by God's Word. And he found that God was, God's Word was starting to do a work in him. And it was giving him an assurance that uh, he could find salvation in God, but it was also giving him strength to do a very dangerous job. See, uh, reported that it was very dangerous to be informed that his life was on the line. And as he began to find Christ in the scriptures, he not only saw Christ for uh, the life giver of salvation, but also the one that protects human life, that goes and seeks to save and protect those who are vulnerable, who can't provide for themselves and care for themselves, the least of these in his communities. And so as he grew in his faith and grew in his work, he started to become strengthened. He started to become less fearful of being caught putting his life on the line for these children. Seek said this, his fear turned into longing, and longing led to transformation in Christ. He became a Christian through this, and he became a top lawyer for the International Justice Mission in Cambodia. And uh, he saw real evil. And God's Word saved him, but also equipped him to battle back in the face of this evil, to stand up for the vulnerable. Our text this morning in the story about sea compels us to ask a couple of questions. With so much evil in the world around us, do we have any reason for hope? Do we have reason for hope? If you're here and you're not a believer, I'm thankful you're here. You have to answer this question as well. There is evil in this world. What's your response to it? As a Christian, we have a worldview that says, yes, there's evil. Yes, we have a reason for hope. And yes, we've been giving marching orders to help out back against this. But to prove this answer, to prove these answers, we have to look at the world with an objective and honest lens. And what Isaiah is doing is giving us that lens. Isaiah is looking at the world around him. He's uh, looked back through the past of Israel's history. He's looking to the, uh, a forward-looking time when the Redeemer would come. And he answers uh, this question of hope and evil in two ways. He honestly points out that the world around him is an absolute wreck. An absolute wreck. Objectively, it is a wreck. But... There's reason for hope because God has promised in and of himself that a redeemer will come and make all this evil right. So, we have to take a look at this honestly. We have to point out and look at the evil in our world and see how Christ is going to come and put an end to this evil. 
and bring good. Look with me in verses 14 and first chapter 15. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public square, and a brightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Now Isaiah is very clearly describing the culture and the world he's living in as an absolute wreck because of the effects of sin. He notices that uh, justice, righteousness, and truth have all fallen. Now we need to make a distinction here. Isaiah is not saying that truth, justice, and righteousness doesn't exist, but he's saying that those three virtues, those three very important critical components of human existence has absolutely departed from the people of which he lives amongst. Everyone has turned their backs on truth, righteousness, and justice, and those who try to battle back against this, those who turn their backs in the evil and pursue truth, righteousness, and justice, puts a massive target on their back. They'll become prey, Isaiah says. Now we need to ask, how in the world did God's people get here, right? Uh, intelligence learns from other people's mistakes. Wisdom uh, just doesn't repeat those mistakes, right? We can see what people have done. That's smart. I'm not going to do that. Wisdom does the opposite of that. So we have to ask, how in the world did we get here? Well, if you take a step back and look at the corpus of the Old Testament, you know that this was a slowly evolving wreck that started well before this point. This right began in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan is uh, introduced to our first parents, Adam and Eve. And he didn't come with red horns and a pitchfork to scare them. But Satan came suddenly tweaking the truth. Satan came in a very sneaky way, um, massaging the truth and bending it for his purposes to cause Adam and Eve to fall. It's truth down around God's love. Does God really love you? Does he really care for you? Surely if he did, he'd let you eat whatever you want to. Satan lied. Adam and Eve be uh, believed in this lie. And then we find in Genesis 3, verse 15, here's what God tells Satan after sin has entered the world. We see this motif of two seeds. And you'll see this all throughout the Bible. There's two seeds, the seed of the serpent, the seed of Christ. Listen here in 3.15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, or seed, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This was the gospel in chapter 13. A seed of Christ would come and destroy the seed of the serpent. But from this point, the seed motif takes off. What happens immediately in Genesis chapter 4? You see, lies enter the world, sin enters the world, and Cain and Abel. What happens? Murder. Cain kills Abel. Mankind starts to become destroyed when sin and truth and righteousness is departed. Now, where do we see this today? Right? Where do we see this today? If you look throughout the course of the Bible, you'll see these two seeds working its way to uh, Christ and Satan in the desert. Uh, and, and then towards the end of the Bible in Revelation, you see the final battle between 
Jesus the Savior. You see at the cross, Jesus, three, Genesis 3, 15, fulfilled the scripture. Right? Satan followed me one, but Jesus dealt a fatal blow to Satan and reduced Satan's power in our world. But Satan's still at work, church. Satan's still at work today. Satan always seeks to destroy the remnant of God's people because he hates humanity. Why does Satan hate humanity? Because we're created in the image of God. Even in our fallen state, we still reflect the image of God in everything that we do. Therefore, Satan does everything he can to destroy mankind completely. And how does he start? Again, he doesn't come around scaring and spooking people. Right? The Bible tells us about Satan that he's an angel of light. And one of the things that he does, just like with Adam and Eve, just like with Jesus in the desert, what he does is he starts to slowly erode the truth. Satan knows the truth probably better than we do about God. Satan has a better theology than we do, and he seeks to use that against us. Satan tweaks the truth ever so slightly. Where do we see this subtle tweaking of the truth in our culture? Where do we see this today? We see this subtle tweak and twist of the truth in relativism. Relativism is a worldview that essentially says what's true for you is true for you. That's great. But that's not my experience. I determine what's real for me. So your truth is your truth. That's great for you, but that's not normative for my experience. I see the world through a different lens. So you can be truthful there. That's you. Stand on that, but I live by a different truth. Now, the premise here is that humanity, we sinners, fallen people, finite people, are the final arbiters of truth, righteousness, and justice. And this relativistic worldview is pitched today in, well, there's no absolute truth. How can you know what's real? There's no absolute truth. And the irony of that statement is that the statement there is an absolute truth is an absolute truth in and of itself. That's called in the logical world a self-licking ice cream cone. Right? It's a defeating premise that's illogical. Okay? That's an absolute claim in and of itself. But what then is the result of a relativistic worldview where mankind determines what truth, righteousness, and justice is? What's the result? Now, for Christians, it's easy for us to start sitting in our seat of righteousness and say, we believe that God's truth is absolute truth, right? But good Christian people, people who trust God, fall all the time into horrendous sin. So let's first start by looking at us and the household of God, then we'll start outward. All right, think about King David, a man after God's own heart. He's wrote some of the most beautiful psalms that encourage our hearts in some of the darkest times. King David fell to some really horrible sin. He saw Bathsheba taking a shower. And he should have turned away and said, that's not for me to see. That's a married woman. Like, it's horrible. I'm not doing it. But his lust grew. His inner sin grew. That's not that bad. He ended up having an affair with Bathsheba. He got her pregnant. Then to cover his tracks, he killed her husband. 
You see, when we start to determine what's good and right by our own fallen moral compass, we can go from small sins to heinousness really quickly, given the right time and opportunity. Let's look outside of God's people. Another David, a Life uh, magazine ran an issue entitled, What is or Who is God? And the article interviewed this man by the name of David B. And he told as a kid, he was, uh, he didn't have a strong family support structure. He didn't have a father. He was an after youth. He was poor. And so what he would do was still to meet his needs. And he felt that it was a victimless crime. These rich people, these stores, what are they going to miss in candy? What are they going to miss this? And as he grew, he became more proficient. And the, the, the sin started to grow. He started breaking the law in greater capacities, where he would carry a gun with him. And he was robbing someone, it became violent, and he had to kill the man to get away. He said this, I didn't set out to kill him, but I did so in cold blood when it seemed necessary. Necessary to who? I did get another thought on this day. So I can go on and on with these stories, but I don't want to belabor the point. Are we starting to see how important truth, justiceness, and righteousness is? Small departures from these three, not corrected by an absolute truth, by absolute justice and righteousness, can spiral quickly. And given the right time and opportunity, we see atrocities happen. And Jesus knows this is Satan's playbook. Hear what Jesus says about Satan and the religious leaders of his day in John 8. He says this, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. Beginning of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So, you cannot bear to hear God's word because it is a lie. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and doesn't stand in what? Truth. Because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We're starting to see, y'all, that there's a direct correlation between truth and life and between life and death. Might say, prove it. Well, be another example. Think about Jesus. What happened to Jesus? Jesus was murdered. For what? For sharing the truth in a broken and dark and fallen world. He was killed unjustly. He was the source of righteousness. He is ultimate justice. Jesus lived out exactly what Isaiah is talking about in this text. Depart from evil and become prey. Jesus lived that out. The big question is why? Hebrews answers that for us. Hebrews 4.12 says this, for the word of God is living and active. This is no joke. These are not fables. These are not tall tales. God's word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, 
of joints and marrow, and discerning the faults and intentions of the heart. Like, oh, Lord, like that sounds rough already. Can you stop? He continues. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Talk about naked and exposed. Shave your head for the first time and see all the lumps in it. Make you feel real exposed. I don't recommend it. Alright? God's word is an exfoliating living power that exposes us from the inside out constantly. And because God's word is real, because God is real and unflinchingly clear about who we are, we can either do one or two things. And I'm not being dogmatic about this. We have two options with God's word. We submit to it and trust God, or we can become really sophisticated at our logical arguments and say, oh, well, this is just an ancient document. How can we know the transmission is correct from the first century elders today? How can we know all these things? Right? They didn't have technology. They didn't have all these things. People were just in the dark. I'm fine to have that conversation with you. Like, I would love to talk about that with you. But one of the things we do as a sophisticated people who are really good at sophisticated sin is we try to assuage ourselves of the power of God's word and its exposure. Recently, we had a missions conference, and Dr. Richard Pratt came, and one thing that really stuck out to me about the time that we had with him that weekend, he said, Christianity up until recently was just kind of this old-fashioned, silly worldview that, I just ignore it, and it'll go away. Those are just some uh, just some kind of strange, old-fashioned people that, eh, just never mind, and it'll just go away. He said, now, what's happened is it's turned from this kind of silliness that needs to be ignored to an evil that must be purged. Right? He's saying Christianity is an evil must, that must be purged. And so as we think about God's Word and how it promotes life, how it promotes uh the flourishing of humanity, and we see Satan hates God, hates everyone created in his image, it makes us ask, is there a part of God's word that promotes human flourishing that's under attack? Think about the biblical position of human sexuality and gender. If you hold and maintain a biblical stance that marriage only exists between one person, man and woman, and that male and female are genders assigned to you by God in your mother's womb, and that you're an actual baby in your mother's womb, See how people get uncomfortable. Why so much uncomfort around holding this biblical position? There's a spiritual current behind it. There's not an innocence behind it. This is a topic that people get very upset about. And listen to the research behind it. J.D. Unwin was an English ethnologist and social anthropologist from Oxford and Cambridge. 
He studied 86 societies over the course of 5,000 years. He didn't live 5,000 years, obviously, but his research was spanning the course of 5,000 years. He found this, that there was a direct correlation to sexual fidelity and societal health. No society is able to retain its health and growth after a completely new generation. Notice that fact. A new generation has inherited a tradition that does not hold prenuptial and postnuptial fidelity. Meaning God's design for human flourishing exists when one man and one woman come together in marriage, and if they're able to, have children, and then pass on that marriage between one man and one woman for their life, and pass it down to generation after generation after generation. Historian Arnold Toynbee discovered, based off of that research, he came to this conclusion. Out of 22 civilizations that have appeared in history, 19 of them collapsed when they reached the moral state that the U.S. is in today. Can you even die in 1975? I'll do the math. There's been quite some time that has passed from the 70s. Where do we see this in our culture today? I'm not picking and choosing what uh, I'm talking about here. Where do we see uh, a battle taking place towards us sharing the beauty of life with the next generation? Where is that fight taking place right now? Just recently, last August, therapist Miranda Galbraith shared that the term pedophilia is offensive, and we should instead use the phrase minor attractive person. We have licensed counselors who are slowly working to normalize adults preying on children. I'm glad I preached this up because I got my tears out there a lot tougher now. Alright? We live in a time where a child can surgically alter their bodies for the rest of their lives because they feel confused by being raised in a culture from starting in preschool where sexual ambiguity is forced on them from people that they trust. Matt, you just read the news too much. No, I was a public school teacher. I saw this. I saw this with my own eyes back in 2008. There is an absolute war to destroy and disfigure God's creation and its birth from the Father of lies. There's a war to even keep us from having children. When we have to argue about at what point in conception that a baby is a baby, we're in a bad place. 
But we can't call a child a child. We call a murder a murder. We're in a bad place. When the children get out of the womb, what are they forced into? A culture that tries to indoctrinate them and confuse them. In 2017 was the last report that I saw of the report of human trafficking. This is the hardest sermon to write. In 2017, human trafficking was a $150 billion industry. 27% of that industry is children, two-thirds of which are girls. The hard part about this, which makes it even more disgusting, statistically, children are abused by people who they know and trust. It's becoming commonplace in our culture. Uh, last night, I was reading the news. The teacher of the year in California, female teacher, I don't remember her name, been arrested for abusing a 12 year old boy. That's last night. Oh, Lord, wow. becoming commonplace for teachers, pastors, elders, business people, next door neighbors, to abuse children, to groom children, teens, and the vulnerable. It's like deer season. I know the best time to kill deer is during rut. Deer are trying to find a date, they're not thinking about danger. I know exactly how to win that, that battle. Predators know exactly who the vulnerable are in our culture. Predators know who the vulnerable are amongst us. And they have no shame. Debating whether or not to share this with us. I was at a previous church and I had a, a child come to me. Uh, and share with me that they were they were groomed and abused by a close family friend who was also a school teacher in their church was also a coach. The student was groomed and abused over time and when the student brought it to her counselor to her parents no one listened. No one believed it. Student pulled me aside, shared with me what had happened. And if I'm the arbiter of truth, then I make it my responsibility for the child to prove it. But if there's objectionable truth, I say we have authorities for this, and I'm passing it on to them. And that's what I did. It's not up to me to determine if that child was being honest or not. It's up to the police to do their job. That's why God puts these people inside of our societies. 
come to find out she wasn't lying. I told her parent, told the person's parents I was going to the police. The parents knew about it. Tried to stop me. And then when the person was arrested, got a slap on the wrist, lawyered up, moved across the border and took another job around children, I was public enemy number one. The parents wouldn't look at me in church anymore. I don't say this to be like, woe is me, Matt's a hero. I don't care about any of that, but I'm letting you know that if children speak about this, it's probably because there's truth in it. Listen to them. Talk to them. This is real. I've never in my life, and I've been in plenty of scrap, I've never wanted to get my hands on somebody so fast. I've never wanted to get a hold of somebody so fast. In church, there's times when we're guilty of sin for not getting upset. This evil should upset us. I burn with anger for thinking about how he escaped real justice. But I can sleep at night because I know I've got a Redeemer who's cloaked himself in righteousness and zeal, and he will repay evil with perfect justice. And we see him in verses 15 through 21. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man in wonder, that there was no one to intercede. Yet his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put garments of dimness for clothing, and wrapped himself in the heel of his cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries. Repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn to his turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And so Isaiah is moving to a point where he's prophetically talking about the cross and Christ's second coming, but he's also, what we see in verse 21, he's, he's uh, listening in to a conversation that the Father, Son, and the Spirit are having. He says this, it's really beautiful, I wish we had time to go there. But he says, my spirit that is upon you, this is God talking to Jesus, and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth, and forevermore. So what Isaiah is describing here is a God that sees evil and he's not indifferent to it. He hates it. And he proves that he's going to do something about it. And that proof is in 17. God is going to suit up in battle. And he is going to repay evil for what is done in the person of Jesus. The gospel is scandalous because evil people can be saved, but those who don't turn the knee to him, he came as a lion when he, uh, lamb when he returns, he's coming back as a lion, right? 
But notice the imagery of the garments of battle in 17 to Ephesians 6, where Paul instructs the church, us, to suit up in like fashion. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God, that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on what? The belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert. So he's talking to us as well. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. And here's the key. That words may be given to me when opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So what Isaiah is picking up, Paul is picking up all from Isaiah, is there's going to be a time where Genesis 3.15 would be accomplished at the cross and Satan and Jesus went to that battle, Jesus rose from the dead and won. But additionally, the next event in human history is when Christ returns. And he's looking past the cross to that time where Jesus will gather his church to himself and he's going to annihilate those who stand against him. He is going to annihilate it like a rushing stream. I wish we had time to go back and read Revelation 19, but the end of Revelation 19 describes Jesus as a warrior on a horse with his robes dipped in blood. This is a violent destruction of evil that's going to happen. You might be asking, how in the world does this give us hope? It gives us hope because God will bring vengeance to evil. There are evil people who will carry out evil in this world who will never, never see justice this side of eternity. But God is grieved by this. God will annihilate it. And I want to speak to those of you who've been hurt who knows someone who's been hurt, who may have had a child that has been hurt. God knows what it's like to have a child hurt. God knows what it's like for injustice to be done to his child. God knows what it's like to have a child abused. And he promises that he's going to do something about it. What do we do what do we do as a church in the face of all this? Notice verse 21. And as for me, keep Ephesians 6 at the end with Paul's gospel, and that is enough. Keep that in mind. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit is upon you. My words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth. For out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, from this time forth and forevermore. In the face of the evil, you are not going to win a logical argument with people who do not care about righteousness, justice, 
We don't need to get on their level and battle in blood. What we do is we hold every thought captive with God's word. This presupposes that you know this word. This presupposes that you understand that biblical illiteracy in our culture is very high. And I'm not saying that out of judgment because that's a part of Satan's plan. Have God's people thinking that Satan's not real. Have them not understanding God's word. And we are just as much prey as those who we seek to protect. In the face of the evil, we don't need to argue on anybody else's territory. But we bring people to God's word. And God will prevail because he has made a covenant in and of himself by Jesus and the Holy Spirit that he would Rain. And we stand today because this word is still living. In the meantime, we've got to realize that we are in a battle where there is real spiritual darkness and evil more than what meets the eye. What we can do at this time is get lost in the myopic, surface level tip of the iceberg sin that we see, and get up in a tizzy about that and get really upset. But we are taught to be shrewd in the sense that we need to be able to peel the layers back and see what's going on behind what meets the eye. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 10, I'm almost done now. He says, for we walk in the flesh. We're not waging war according to the flesh, meaning we're not going out fist fighting a bunch of evil people. God raises up police and military for that. We support them and love them. Thank God for them. But us as the church, we're not going out picketing, fighting, and raising canes. We've got a bigger fight. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion, meaning whatever the cultural opinion is of the day, raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought captive inside of us and every thought that's brought to our place, we all take people to the Word. We have got to know this Word. So what's our action plan? Our action plan is to first realize that we are sinful, and the only thing separating us from an agnostic, atheistic, God-hating worldview is the grace of God. We didn't button ourselves up. We did not save ourselves. God saved us by His grace. I'm sure that we all, have, maybe all, have a story of which if one more opportunity would have happened at the right time, our whole lives would look very different. I know I sure do. Secondly, knowing how much we've been loved and forgiven, we share that love and forgiveness with those around you. We share this good news of what Jesus did, not out of the seat of condemnation, not because we're better than others, but out of realizing what we've been saved from, the transformation that has happened in us, and how that can happen in other people. Church, we need to realize the distinction here. The power of sin has been broken in you. If you trust in Jesus, you are no longer a slave to sin. But the presence of sin still lingers in us and around us. 
And right now, we are in a spiritual battle for truth, righteousness, and justice in our own hearts and in the world. Honestly, the world is going to continue going the way it's always going unless we stand up. Unless we stand up and know what we believe and why we believe it. And we have got to proclaim this with words matched by actions in the context of relationships. We can go and scream at people. We can become keyboard warriors. We can do all the things that God might save people through those methods. But Jesus' method for changing the world was meeting sinners on their own territory, going into their homes, and building relationships with them. And he never took the teeth out of God's word. He never tried to assuage people. He never tried to water the word down. He loved people enough to be honest with them and to point out their sins, see the woman at the well, and point them to life-giving water. No longer, church, can we be on the defensive end of this. No longer can we sit back in our homes, in our workplaces, and in this building and just know what we don't stand against. The culture very much knows what we don't stand against. We have got to do a job of telling people why we believe what we believe and go on the offensive and share truth in life and the why behind what we believe boldly, without fear. Because this is bigger than us. This is for the next generation. We are one generation away from closing the doors to Christ Church East. And if we do not share our faith and why we believe what we believe with the littles around us, maybe if you don't even have kids, it's why we have a nursery to love children. And you might not have kids, but guess what? You're a spiritual big brother and big sister to other people around you, to the lost. You've got a duty to equip yourself and let the strings of grace fill and overflow you and flow into others because for some, it's going to be the fragrance of life. For others, it's going to be the stench of death, but it's not your job to be the arbiter of that truth. You let God do the judging and the sifting. You live out what you believe with words and actions in the context of beautiful Christian grace-infused relationships with the lost and the hurting and the broken. No matter your age here today, no matter your stage, no matter your influence, let God's Word fill you. Trust that God will do that. Preach the gospel to yourself because it's going to to correct the injustice in your own heart. Allow that grace to overflow you and to fill other people. And the biggest thing you can do is open your eyes. Pray that God would open them to the evil that surrounds you. And be stirred like seed who saw injustice and wanted to do something about it. If you're here, we have people mobilized, ready 
to help people who are being victimized trafficking. I can point you to them right now. If you want to get involved, we can do it. But it's going to take all of us individually in the context of the relationships that we have to love other people like Christ has loved us, be honest with them, and to point them to the hope of life. Let's pray. Father, may we not live in my own self, Lord, willful ignorance, scared to read the statistics on human trafficking, scared to read, Lord, that the majority of traffickers know their victims well. They prey on their trust. Father, I pray for our children. I pray for our families. I pray for my own family that you would give us wisdom to point out honest human behavior. That we would not be cynical, but Lord, that we would also not just freely give people the benefit of the doubt for no reason because they seem like really good people. Give us wisdom, Father. Give us wisdom, Holy Spirit. Give us disgust, a holy disgust for what's happening around us. May we enter into these dark, dark places with the light of you, with the good news of your life, death, and resurrection, and ascension and return. Our story ends in victory, Jesus, because you come and destroy evil once and for all, and we will live in eternity in a new heaven, a new earth, where sin will be no more. There will be no more tears, where we will rejoice together. Ever.